Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Carmel Majidi. I'm an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Mm-hmm. So we would like to ask you about your research of robotics. Could you please tell us more about that? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, ask the question again. I, I didn't catch it. Yeah, um, I'm asking, could you please tell us about your research in soft robotics, what you're actually doing in your research group? Uh, right, sure. Um, so I run a research group called the Soft Machines Lab uh, here at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and our focus is uh, to engineer new types of uh, soft materials uh, that could be used in robots uh, and machines. Um, and the emphasis is on uh, materials that are kind of soft, elastic, highly deformable, uh, and they could be used as effectively artificial skin, uh, artificial nervous tissue, and also artificial muscle uh, in next generation soft robots and, and machines that interface with the human body. Oh, that's interesting. Um, actually, what's really interesting about your lab, because you focus on the material science, uh, and there's something I would like to ask about. Do you are more interested about design and uh, soft robotics, uh, intelligence, or just the controlling? So, uh, which philosophy you are more uh, bound to about uh, in soft robotics? Um, I mean, our focus more on the materials engineering uh, and achieving functionality through the underlying choice of materials and also mechanics of the material architectures. Um, and so, we don't have kind of a, um, you know, a kind of a, a strong mission when it comes to um, achieving kind of any sort of, you know, particular type of control or, or kind of intelligence strategy mm. within the overall engineered system. The idea is that we want to incorporate as much of that control and intelligence into the uh, material itself. And so, uh, our focus has been to engineer these materials with kind of intrinsic properties of sensing uh, digital circuit uh, functionality and also actuation, uh, either through uh, programmable shape change uh, or stiffness tuning. Mm. That's, uh, we will go back to uh, more details because you have really many projects about uh, the material and self-healing material, which is really interesting in terms of applications later on. But I would like to ask you um, why you choose to work soft robotics. Back into your uh, portfolio, we have bachelor's in civil engineering and later on PhD in electrical engineering and computer science. So why you did be interested in, in soft robotics? Well, I've always been interested in biological inspiration. Mm. Uh, even going back to my uh, undergraduate studies, uh, I did research on uh, biomechanics and, and human locomotion and, and really trying to understand why humans uh, move the way they did, mm. um, you know, just for, you know, regular motor tasks. Uh, my, my first uh, research project was on studying playground swinging and, you know, why children kind of pump the playground swing the, you know, the way they do uh, to, to kind of get that, the maximum elevation. And, and that kind of uh, led me on a path to, to really look towards, uh, you know, the human body uh, and the kind of more generally biological organisms uh, for uh, guidance uh, and clues on how to kind of effectively control uh, and design uh, machines. Um, and so uh, after my undergraduate work, I moved to Berkeley, uh, where I did my uh, graduate research uh, on uh, studying um, uh, gecko uh, adhesion and how uh, lizards uh, climb walls. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, based on lessons from natural gecko adhesive, uh, I did work on engineering synthetic uh, gecko adhesive. So again, kind of looking to nature uh, to come up with uh, uh, novel material architectures and, and designs uh, to create uh, engineered systems that had pro- properties that you didn't see in, in kind of more uh, conventional uh, uh, synthetic materials. Um, mm-hmm. And so that uh, kind of uh, eventually led to postdoctoral work uh, looking at um, uh, creating uh, wearable sensors and, and uh, computing systems uh, that were compatible with the human body uh, that could uh, track motion and, and also kind of maintain their uh, circuit functionality 
under kind of large deformations and stretch. And so that quickly kind of led to kind of more general interest in this emerging field of soft robotics, where not just, you know, the interest is not just in stretchable electronics and sensing, but also actuation and control. So actually, you have many, many broad projects in soft robotics and from multifunction material to soft material interaction. And I would like to ask you about what do you think of like the ionic conductive polymer as soft material to be used in a robotics application? As far as we know, that there is also limitation in terms of the power required. Um, and I don't know how, how you think about this CIS trade-off and the material that you were looking for the specific mechanical performance and the power applied. So how you see this um, limitation is the material like, in terms of the polymers science? A lot of what I find exciting about the field of soft robotics uh, is that there's a lot of different materials and, and material architectures that have a wide range of different properties. And I, and I find them for the most part to be complementary uh, to one another. So mm -hmm. any one technology, whether we're talking about uh, a transducer for sensing, um, you know, some type of conductive material for structural circuitry, uh, materials for uh, reversible stiffness tuning or shape change, there's gonna be pros and cons. Um, and, and, and I think part of you know, what makes this uh, so kind of stimulating as, a, as an engineer and scientist uh, is that we can, you know, really kind of understand these uh, uh, materials kind of at their fundamental level um, and, and uh, anticipate what some of those limitations are going to be, uh, and then we can kind of engineer accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, ionic polymer metal uh, composite actuators, I think, is a great example uh, of a material system uh, that has uh, certain unique advantages, but then also, of course, you know, as with any other technology, limitations and, and disadvantages. And so I would say in the specific case of IPMCs, um, very exciting uh, because for the most part, they are made out of soft and, and highly flexible materials. So immediately you've kind of eliminated the need for um, uh, motors or, or say uh, uh, air compressors or kind of hydraulic hardware. Um, and what's more is that these uh, actuators operate with very low voltages. And mm -hmm. so you can operate them directly uh, using small miniaturized power supplies, batteries, and, and, and microcontrollers. Um, now, a, uh, you know, some of the limitations uh, that you know, have, have been discussed in the, limita uh, in, in the literature uh, with IPMCs uh, are that um, they, you know, just as they're very kind of uh, flexible and made out of soft materials, they, they have fairly limited work densities, and so they can't produce very high um, uh, forces. Um, and, uh, and kind of a, another challenge with these materials is that uh, because they rely on hydration, mm. uh, they, uh, they, they are susceptible to drying out. Uh, so they have to be continuously hydrated. And, and there's some very clever solutions out there to, to kind of keep these uh, uh, actuators sealed. And so they can um, uh, kind of r remain hydrated even when they're used out in the air. But as far as kind of underwater mm. uh, applications, I think there, you know, there's a lot of advantages to the IPMCs. But, you know, that's, you know, not to say that, you know, uh, other actuator technologies don't kind of have their pros as well. Yeah. But here I would like to ask about in terms of the replicability of the, uh, the actuation. Do you think it's realistically we can use the ionic conductive polymer IPMC in, in uh, certain applications? Because still we have to work in aqueous medium so we can make sure that we maintain the mechanical performance. So there is a limitation here, and also about, you all focus about the biocompatibility. Do you think it's also biocompatible for certain application? So, um, you know, with regards to kind of practicality and, and dry conditions, I mean, that's, you know, that's a challenge, you know, just generally with uh, these uh, various ionic polymers. And I think there's been a lot of great progress in you know, creating uh, seals and, and, and capsulants uh, so that these materials can last for, mm. for quite a long time uh, in dry conditions. And so I personally don't do research uh, in, the, in this domain, so I can't really you know, comment on the kind of the long-term feasibility mm. uh, or say the you know, fatigue life of these types of materials uh, in, in dry conditions. Um, I mean, my understanding is that's still an area of, of research uh, and which you know, obviously makes it you know, exciting you know, to, to pursue kind of mm. as, you know, for the field as a whole. Um, in terms of biocompatibility, uh, again, you know, I know that 
the synthesis technique to, to make the, these actuators, I mean, there are certain steps there, you know, that of course have to be performed in a fume hood as with, you know, a lot of other, you know, types of, uh, types of materials. Um, um, uh, but, you know, in terms of, you know, their compatibility as kind of for on-body applications or maybe even implants, you know, I, I really don't know. Uh, I'm not mm -hmm. familiar enough uh, with the uh, kind of the, say, cytotoxicity or kind of compatibility of those materials with, with human tissue. Uh, again, I don't do research uh, with those materials, and so I don't, I don't have those kind of insights. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to go to the material you have already developed in the lab, that self-healing material, which I think is really promising. Could you please tell us more about what could be the potential behind these self-healing materials you have developed already? Sure. So the, the materials uh, that we've um, developed that have these uh, self-healing properties um, uh, are composed of this unique combination of soft elastomers like silicone rubber uh, and little microscopic droplets uh, of liquid metal. And, uh, and the liquid metal that we use uh, is an alloy of gallium and indium. Uh, it forms this uh, eutectic uh, that's uh, liquid at room temperature, um, and it's a, it's a metal, uh, so uh, electrically conductive. Uh, and we engineer these composites so that these droplets of, of liquid metal within the rubber uh, form this uh, what's called a percolating network. And so the, the droplets are kind of making physical contact with each other, uh, and they form these uh, conductive pathways. Uh, throughout uh, the rubber. Um, now, using uh, techniques that you know other researchers have, have also kind of been adopting, um, we've uh, been able to, in a sense, uh, center uh, these these droplets uh, together. Um, so this is kind of a, a technique that you know other researchers like Rebecca Kramer uh, at Yale uh, had discovered with with these droplets of liquid metal. Um, we've uh, uh, kind of adapted that uh, for these these particular composites where. The droplets are now fully encapsulated inside the rubber, uh, and then when we center these droplets and form these uh, connected pathways, they create these electrically conductive traces, and we can use that mm -hmm. for stretchable uh, uh, circuit wiring. Now, what's uh, kind of ex uh, you know really fascinating about mm -hmm. this composition uh, is that if you were to mechanically damage uh, that conductive trace. So if you were to say cut it uh, with a razor blade, or you say puncture it with a you know say a hole puncher, or you know damage it through uh, uh, you know some type of um, hard contact, um, the droplets kind of in the damaged area. I mean you know they you know that that kind of portion of the material. Um, uh, you know, might get severed or it could just get kind of removed uh, altogether. Uh, but droplets kind of in the vicinity uh, of that damaged uh, region will experience a high degree of stress that will induce this uh, mechanical centering uh, and will form new electrically conductive pathways around that damaged region. And so in that way, uh, the material exhibits this almost spontaneous um, uh, uh, self-healing property, not so much self-healing in terms of the material integrity, but mm. in terms of the integrity of the electrical circuit. And so new conductive pathways are formed and your electrical circuit remains intact. Is it dependent on the shape? Because I think that when you, uh, read you that when you just damage this material, is there certain shapes that make this passes created? Because I think sometimes the voltage is increasing. So if there's an explanation behind the shape or or the area of the damage that can change the, the, the voltage applied? For the most part, we find that when you mechanically damage the material, um, we see that the digital circuit remains functional uh, and that the electrical resistance of that trace uh, doesn't really change that much. Uh, in fact, in some cases, uh, when you remove material, um, what you form is not one, but two uh, new electrical pathways around kind of both sides of that damage zone. And so what you actually find is a decrease uh, in electrical resistance. Um, and, and, and we've done some studies to see um, how that uh, decrease in electrical resistance, uh, you know, varies with different geometries and, and, and types of uh, damage uh, that you can <laughs> inflict on this composite. Um, but, you know, the, the important thing here is that uh, the resistance is not increasing. And, and it's mm -hmm. really the increase in resistance which would interfere with the uh, properties of the digital circuit. And so we don't uh, see any evidence of that. But with, with regards to the decrease uh, in, the, in the resistance and the improved conductivity, um, that's something that 
we could uh, explore further. Um, again, we've done some um, experimental uh, studies on this, uh, which we report uh, in, in the paper, um, but certainly there's more that could be done uh, in, uh, in, in terms of computational modeling. Uh, and, and we do actually have some computational work uh, that, that we started, um, and, and some of that work is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about the finishing of soft robotics because you also did an interesting uh, part about designing switches based on the electrochemistry and redox operation, which led to a question about how we can see soft robotics is fully soft because we still have to integrate some rigid parts on soft robotics. So I would like to ask you how you define soft robotics from your perspective. And we would like us to know more about the designing of switches based on electrochemistry and redox operation that you really did? Sure, so, so I can talk, uh, start by uh, just uh, talking about the, the uh, switches and then you know, I can talk a bit more generally about soft robotics. And mm. so the uh, work that I did uh, on the, um, uh, the, this uh, so-called liquid metal transistor, um, the concept uh, borrows uh, from some uh, more recent discoveries uh, by Michael Dickey uh, and his research group at uh, North Carolina State University. What mm. they found uh, was that these droplets of uh, liquid metal um, uh, exhibit some really kind of interesting uh, capillary effects uh, when you um, apply voltage to the droplets uh, as they're immersed uh, in uh, some type of uh, uh, base or acidic solution. And so they did studies with uh, hydrochloric acid uh, and sodium hydroxide. And, you know, you know, for example, in the case of sodium hydroxide, what they found was that when the droplet uh, was immersed in the aqueous solution, uh, that um, it would have a really high surface tension. And so the liquid metal would kind of you know, ball up into a, a mm. bead. Uh, and the surface tension, uh, you know, based on their measurements, is about 10 times higher than the surface uh, tension of water. Mm. Um, and when they applied uh, a voltage drop, uh, that it, it caused oxidation on the surface uh, of the liquid metal droplet of form this, uh, again, remember this is a alloy of gallium and indium, and so uh, when it oxidized, it formed this uh, gallium oxide skin, and that had the effect of dramatically reducing uh, the surface tension of the droplet. And so um, the droplet, instead of, uh, you know, being, you know, you know balled up into this, in, in, into this kind of almost perfectly spherical bead, it would just sag uh, under the weight of gravity and then form almost this kind of, you know, disc or pancake-like uh, shape. So, so that kind of struck us as, as very interesting um, because what it, it did was it suggested that we could kind of use this effect uh, to create a, uh, uh, a effectively an electrical switch, uh, where if we had two droplets adjacent to each other and we did these uh, reduction and oxidation um, reactions, we could uh, have the droplets uh, reversibly transition between these uh, beaded uh, uh, shapes uh, where they were kind of separated from each other uh, into these uh, kind of flattened, almost pancake-like shapes, uh, where then they would kind of the edges would touch and they would coalesce and they would form uh, a kind of a continuous electrical connection. Um, in our studies, we found that um, in addition to just you know, reduction in oxidation, we could uh, introduce gradients uh, in the oxidation, and so we could have some regions that had um, you know virtually no surface tension, whereas other regions would have much higher surface tension. Uh, and those gradients in surface tension would create these basically uh, internal forces that would uh, basically tear the droplets apart uh, so that they would go from being coalesced to, to being separate. And so we could uh, do this uh, droplet coalescence and separation uh, fairly rapidly uh, by applying these uh, uh, redox potentials. And, and the voltages are, are pretty modest on the mm. order of just uh, you know, a few volts. And so again, something that you can easily operate uh, with a uh, battery or, or some uh, microcontroller. And, um, and uh, what we found was uh, basically the effect of a transistor where you had these um, uh, source uh, electrode, a drain electrode, and also these gating electrodes where you yeah. could yeah. Uh, uh, basically apply voltage to uh, reversibly open and close uh, the connection. Mm -hmm. So if we speak about what could be potential application behind this uh, project, you could foresee in soft robotics, we can apply it. Do you have any uh, ideas for how we can apply uh, the electric switches here? 
So, so the main motivation of this work was really to un understand the interplay uh, yeah. between the electrochemistry, the surface tension, and the configuration of these uh, of these droplets. And so it's kind of more of a basic study. And as a okay. part of that, uh, we also uh, developed some computational uh, models um, uh, and uh, also developed some uh, uh, analytical models as well, um, where we found very good agreement uh, between what we were observing uh, experimentally and, and, and theoretically. Uh, so that was kind of really the uh, primary motivation of that work. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of applications, though, um, yes, uh, I mean, there could be some uh, use relevant use cases uh, where we could use effects like this. Now, I'm not, you know, arguing that we have to make, you know, uh, you know, liquid metal computers or create microprocessor chips that, that mm. uh, exploit this effect. I mean, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, you know, just kind of the existing uh, um, uh, fuel effect transistors based on semiconductors far outperform anything that you would ever possibly be able to achieve with a, a fluidic uh, transistor. With that said, though, uh, we could potentially use these types of transistors uh, as um, relays or switches or, or kind of individual kind of gated logic elements uh, within a larger uh, soft and, and, and stretchable and, and fluidic um, circuit, uh, you would still have your embedded microprocessor to, to do all the, the signal processing. And, um, yeah. and, and of course, that would still be based on these uh, kind of the, the more conventional field effect transistors. Uh, but as a complement to that, it, there could be cases where you would still want a circuit uh, where it could uh, kind of reconfigure the, the electrical connections uh, between the different uh, components and, and devices within the circuit using this uh, uh, liquid transistor type effect. Mm -hmm. So if I would like to ask about the challenges that you would like to solve recently in e-research, what, what is the challenge that you had with it? More and more, we're interested in uh, human-machine interaction and, and also wearable computing uh, and human motor assistance. Um, one of the big challenges uh, there are to create uh, materials that can fairly rapidly uh, and reversibly change their stiffness. Um, mm. So that's been a kind of a fairly recent uh, focus uh, of our research. Um, uh, we actually had uh, one recent study uh, that uh, ended up um, uh, leading to a spin-off company uh, from my lab. Uh, we're looking to commercialize uh, some of the technologies kind of around this uh, research challenge. Uh, but, but basically the, the challenge is that we want to have uh, kind of actuator like tendons uh, or, or elements uh, that can uh, very quickly transition uh, from being you know, very soft and, and compliant to, to being um, uh, inextensible and load-bearing. Um, and this is a feature of natural muscle uh, and also, um, you know, natural tissue like catch connective tissue that we see in sea cucumbers and all the uh, other uh, echinoderms. Um, and um, in a practical engineering application, it's important that we can uh, uh, induce this uh, uh, change in rigidity uh, with a fairly low power. Um, and if we're relying on kind of onboard electric electronics, um, uh, we should be able to do this uh, uh, quite rapidly um, and, and preferably kind of with, with uh, moderate uh, voltages. So, um, you know, voltages that could be supplied with onboard uh, miniaturized electronics uh, in, in a manner that's uh, safe for the human body. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So, for now, for soft robotics, there's two trends. In your lab, you focus on the material integration for uh, for uh, multifunctional, and other research group focus on the controlling of material, the passive material. So I don't know, I don't know how you think about which one could really survive in the long run. If we speak about designing material that could think, or just focusing on controlling algorithm to control passive material in soft robotics. I don't know how, which philosophy do you think could really survive in the long run, or we have to, we have to. Um, focus on the, in the long run. So, so I think there is, um, so that's a wonderful question. And I think, you know, whether we focus on engineering materials that have intrinsic intelligence uh, and um, uh, have limited dependency on, say, microprocessors and, and kind of electronics uh, for control uh, and, and decision making versus uh, having uh, soft multifunctional materials with embedded uh, microelectronic components to do all the signal processing and, and uh, decision making. I think that's, you know, uh, which path to choose, I think, is a good question. Um, 
And from a practical kind of engineering and implementation uh, standpoint, I would say that you know, in the long run, it's uh, good to be familiar with both techniques uh, and uh, use them in a complementary fashion. With that said, though, I would say as academics, as, as researchers, I think we really do have to challenge ourselves. And I think it's totally fine to be fairly dogmatic and, and just kind of choose one path over the other. Um, I have different projects uh, in, in my group where we're kind of dogmatically pursuing these two separate paths. Uh, so on one path, uh, we're engineering uh, soft and stretchable uh, electronic circuits uh, where we use um, you know, either serpentine uh, traces of copper or we use microfluid channels of liquid metal as the circuit interconnects. Uh, but the active components in the circuit uh, are still these kind of conventional uh, digital microelectronic chips, uh, you know, microprocessors for um, signal processing. And, and, you know, we have chips for um, uh, wireless communication and then also for, for uh, various uh, sensing modalities. And so um, that's something that uh, we're pursuing where the, a lot of the, the science and the open research is about how do we create the printed circuit board that uh, wires together uh, these embedded chips and how can we uh, ensure uh, kind of robust contacts uh, between those highly stretchable, soft and formable um, uh, uh, circuit uh, connections uh, with the uh, interfacing rigid uh, microelectronic component. So, so that's uh, you know certainly an area that um, you know we've uh, you know been interested in and have been pursuing, and it's you know a direction that my lab will continue to go. Hmm. From a kind of an academic standpoint, though, um, I do find it very interesting, kind of almost on a you know dogmatically to to kind of focus on engineering soft materials where there is no dependency. Uh, on embedded microelectronic components. And I think that's a, um, a very timely uh, problem for people within the academic community to focus on. And so if you had to choose one, I would say just, you know, just focus on that um, because, you know, there you know, certainly could be kind of opportunities there that we just, um, you know, haven't kind of, you know, seen with, with kind of more conventional printed circuit boards and, and microelectronics. Um, and so the advantage of uh, uh, engineering materials where the kind of intelligence uh, is kind of embedded into the material itself, um, I mean, one big motivation for that, I think, is, is self-healing, self-repair, and also reconfigurability. Um, uh, materials where the intelligence is kind of encoded or, or kind of engineered into the, um, the actual composition itself, um, you know, could potentially uh, exhibit properties like, um, you know, neural plasticity that you see in, in nervous mm. tissue. Um, now, in principle, you could kind of mimic uh, or kind of approach similar functionalities with more conventional uh, circuit boards, but I think kind of engineering this into the intrinsic material properties of, of, the, of the composite itself is exciting uh, because you'll have just that much more kind of versatility uh, when it comes to maintaining that that plasticity and that reconfigurability. You know, as the material is kind of molded into different ways, as it you know say undergoes mm -hmm. damage or is uh, you know say you know torn apart. Um, and so, so I, I think that I think that's kind of one, you know, the, the big motivation for why we might be interested in uh, engineering materials that have this embodied intelligence. Yeah, interesting. So I would like to ask you, what is the most interesting project you are currently involved in, software projects? Um, so a project that we have right now in my group uh, is to engineer soft uh, mobile robots that are fully untethered, mm -hmm. um, and so. Uh, they derive uh, kind of all their actuation and, and power and, and control uh, with uh, onboard hardware. And uh, what you know makes these interesting is that by kind of eliminating uh, you know the, the cables and the wiring to external um, uh, hardware, uh, we can get a much greater mobility. Uh, these uh, robots can kind of move in, in an unfettered uh, fashion. Uh, and uh, what it allows us to do is uh, start using these robots as experimental test beds uh, to validate some of the computational tools uh, that we're uh, developing to simulate uh, soft robots. And so this um, uh, kind of combined work of building untethered robots and then also kind of a physics engine for soft mm -hmm. robots where we use those untethered uh, test beds to validate uh, our modeling kind of represents, uh, uh, at least for me, kind of a very exciting uh, direction. Uh, we've made a lot of nice progress uh, so far 
a couple of projects uh, uh, that we're uh, uh, wrapping up um, uh, that show uh, strong agreement uh, between theory and experiment, at least kind of for uh, uh, kind of more 2D or, or planar type uh, motion. Uh, and then as we kind of wrap those studies up, we're going to transition uh, to more complex uh, 3D uh, shapes and, and motions. So I would like to ask about uh, as soft robotics is interdisciplinary field and you already have the old backgrounds. But do you think that we have to overcome the challenges of speaking different languages between material science, control expert, electrical engineering? I think you already have this all the background background you have, but do you think in the community of soft robotics we have limitation here about understanding each other in terms of material perspective to electrical engineering or computer science? I think the community has made great progress in bringing in more and more uh, voices, bringing in uh, more diverse perspectives in, uh, in robotics uh, and materials engineering. Uh, and so, um, you know, we have, you know, everywhere from chemists and, and biologists and material scientists uh, all the way to, uh, you know, computer scientists and electrical engineers, uh, uh, mechanical engineers all working together. Uh, to tackle all the various aspects of this highly inter interdisciplinary field. Um, so uh, I'm highly encouraged, uh, I think, by the, um, you know, the, the kind of the openness of this uh, community. Um, now, that does actually present challenges. I wouldn't say that, you know, we've had barriers in terms of communication. We haven't. Uh, I, th I think there's been, you know, you know a lot of uh, excellent forums um, uh, for kind of this exchange of ideas across disciplines. Um, I think that for researchers within the field, uh, it does uh, pose uh, a challenge, um, um, you know, especially for those researchers who are pursuing kind of an academic uh, career, who are getting their PhD, who are looking to, to kind of start uh, a research lab. Um, it's important that they balance this highly interdisciplinary field with some type of scientific foundation uh, that uh, does kind of uh, connect to their uh, particular discipline. Um, it's, it's important that um, the work not be too ad hoc in terms of mashing together all these different disciplines and concepts, uh, and that it does uh, not only solve problems within the soft robotics community, but you know create a new platform uh, to to kind of uh, explore kind of more fundamental problems within each of these uh, respective disciplines. And so I think. That's uh, you know uh, a challenge that a lot of uh, researchers face. Um, how can they pursue this very broad interdisciplinary work, but all at the same time be grounded in, in some core scientific discipline where they're also making uh, basic research contributions there as well? Um, and I think you know people see that um, you know for, uh, everywhere from the integrative biology side, you know where there's you know you can you know think of soft robots as being test beds to explore questions and say you know integrative or evolutionary biology, uh, all the way of course to the kind of chemistry and, and kind of material side, uh, or say I should say materials uh, uh, engineering side, um, uh, all the way to the kind of the algorithmic uh, side. Um, you know when we start looking at applying uh, statistical learning algorithms to uh, control and, and sensing and um, uh, state estimation of these uh, of these soft robots. Um, and so it's important that researchers kind of maintain that connection uh, with their core scientific disciplines while they still kind of remain uh, open to, um, you know, learning about these these various different perspectives and, and, and uh, collaborate on an uh, interdisciplinary basis. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the most promising project have been done so far by other research groups in soft robotics? Um, I'm, I'm fairly biased uh, in the sense that, you know, for me, what I find exciting as an engineer um, and, and somebody with, with kind of training in robotics um, are those types of projects uh, where there is kind of clear societal impact and opportunities uh, for uh, translation kind of in, in, into the real world. And, and so I've been particularly encouraged by efforts of, uh, you know, all sorts of kind of, you know, researchers and participants in this field to try to commercialize uh, their, their uh, work in soft robotics or, you know, um, uh, you know translate it to, to applications in manufacturing, industrial automation, uh, or in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, uh, for me, continues to be exciting. Uh, with that said, um, I mean, there's a lot of kind of exciting kind of more basic research and, and kind of scientific uh, opportunities that 
uh, and then opportunities for advancement. Uh, but me personally, uh, I'm particularly inspired and encouraged uh, by those those efforts that that really look for kind of real world applications. Mm -hmm. So, how do you see Prop Robotics as a future? Because I, I I think you have also the project tattoo that can be used uh, for monitoring health, monitoring or something. So. How do you think about health robotics in the future? Like being in our homes or just something we can be integrated in our bodies? I think this is something also interesting to be highlighted. I think you have also something about this direction. Right. I mean, soft robotics has been around pretty much um, as long as the field of robotics as a whole. Mm. Um, and so, and, and I, I would argue that as we kind of look to the you know, future of soft robotics, I mean, we can just kind of more generally look uh, to the future of uh, robotics, personal electronics, uh, you know, edge computing. And, and so all those places where we anticipate kind of robotics and automation, you know, having an impact on our lives, I mean, those are opportunities uh, for soft robotics uh, also to make an impact. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it makes sense. I mean, really, you know, all at the end of the day, you know, soft robotics is, is really about, um, you know, you know, as much as possible using uh, materials that are soft, deformable, mechanically compatible with the human body in place of kind of, you know, more uh, rigid um, and, and, and extensible materials. Um, and so, um, you know, when it comes to medicine, wearable computing, uh, human motor assistance, you know, more generally human machine interaction, um, we're going to continue to see applications uh, for uh, soft robotics uh, also in manufacturing and industrial automation where we want end effectors uh, that can kind of uh, interact with uh, uh, delicate or say regularly shaped objects in, in ways that could be challenging with more conventional parallel plate end effectors or suction cups. Um, yeah, again, we'll, we'll kind of see uh, applications of, of soft robotics. And so, um, uh, yeah, I would say it kind of, you know, covers a spectrum uh, in terms of all the different um, uh, industries and, and application domains where we'll continue to see, you know, progress with, uh, you know, incorporating soft robotic solutions. Mm -hmm. So coming to the industrial sector, because you, you mentioned that you have already spent off from your research lab about the project you have done. Do you think soft robotics can find a room in an in industry? I think already there's indexes that we can survive in the long run to having a product soft robotics. Uh... Um, I think that soft robotics, uh, in my mind, is you know kind of like edge computing or, or machine learning. I, I kind of see it as a, as a tool uh, or an approach uh, that's going to find its place in, in kind of a wide range of different uh, industries and, and applications. And so I don't think that there's necessarily going to be a um, soft robotics industry, you know, kind of standalone that, you know, uh, instead I think it's going to basically uh, be incorporated um, and, and find its way into, into a wide range of different uh, industries. Uh, I think it's going to be kind of, you know, viewed as uh, just an important kind of uh, uh, design kind of framework uh, or even to some extent mindset uh, for how we in engineer hardware um, using, again, soft materials as opposed to kind of rigid um, uh, uh, kind of uh, plastics and, and metals. Mm -hmm. So we would like to ask about the current cooperation you already have with other research groups in soft robotics. Is there any cooperation you already have? Um, so right now we have quite a number of um, uh, fairly active collaborations. Um, uh, one of the collaborations uh, that, uh, that that we have uh, in the kind of the more of the medical domain is with a group at uh, the uh, University of Coimbra in Portugal. Um, uh, they're interested in uh, creating uh, electronic stickers and, and uh, devices for um, use with uh, prosthetics. Um, and so they want to engineer a prosthetic that you say could control uh, with uh, uh, by monitoring uh, muscle activity. Um, and so that's been a very um, uh, productive uh, collaboration. Uh, we also recently published uh, a paper in, in science robotics uh, where we report uh, on a soft robot gripper uh, that incorporates a genetically modified uh, bacteria uh, that have been programmed uh, to detect certain uh, chemical um, stimuli. And so it's a really exciting collaboration where we're kind of merging synthetic biology uh, with uh, microfluidics, flexible electronics, and then soft robotics, uh, all within this uh, um, uh, uh, you, know, you know, fully integrated uh, system uh, where 
uh, we can allow the gripper uh, to perform chemical sensing and then, you know, in, in, in kind of a water bath environment. And then based on uh, what the, uh, the genetically programmed bacteria detect, uh, the gripper can then make decisions about whether to, say, place a certain object in that in that water bath or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been another, uh, uh, you know, very exciting collaboration where we have uh, a lot of ideas uh, moving forward about how we want to combine synthetic biology uh, with uh, soft robotics uh, to create these these highly versatile uh, and adaptable uh, soft machines. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about what is the most professional achievement you are proud of that you have done so far in soft robotics. Um, I would say that the achievement that I'm personally uh, most proud of um, uh, is uh, this uh, discovery of um, uh, rubber composites uh, where we can tailor the electrical and thermal conductivities uh, without altering the mechanical properties of the composite. And the way we accomplish that uh, is by embedding the rubber with these microscopic droplets of liquid metal. And, and we found that these composites have a, a, quite a range of, of very unique mechanical, electrical, and, and thermal properties uh, that, that we just haven't seen before in other soft rubber, rubber composites. Um, you know, most of these uh, rubber composites in the past, uh, their uh, electrical and thermal properties are uh, tailored using rigid uh, microparticles, but that typically degrades uh, uh, the um, uh, mechanical properties of those composites. Uh, in the our case with these liquid metal droplets, because the droplets uh, are can kind of flow and deform with the surrounding rubber, uh, we don't see any kind of change in the overall stiffness or the strain limit uh, of these materials. And in fact, we see a fairly dramatic increase in the tear resistance uh, and, and fracture toughness of, of these composites. And so it's it's a system that um, we're, we're still investigating. Uh, our earlier work uh, looked at kind of more micro scale uh, droplets, so the droplets uh, had diameters on the order of 1 to 10 microns. Uh, more recently, we've been looking at synthesis techniques where we can create composites with droplets uh, that are much smaller on the order of, you know, hundreds of nanometer uh, diameter, and we see that that leads to, to kind of even, uh, uh, you know, more kind of interesting and, and effective properties of, of, for the, of these composites um, uh, and kind of opens new, uh, new opportunities. Uh, for applications in, in soft robotics and wearable computing. So uh, I would say that that kind of represents one of the uh, kind of more significant kind of singular uh, contributions from my research group. Um, um, but uh, generally, I, I mean, our, our lab has, um, uh, you know, been looking at various ways of incorporating uh, liquid metal into rubbers uh, to create uh, electronics and multifunctional materials where we see this uh, highly kind of robust uh, mechanically deformable functionality without sacrificing uh, any of the kind of uh, the, the uh, intrinsic kind of electrical or thermal properties uh, of the of the liquid metal. Mm -hmm. So now the market's interested in AI and is becoming the driving force to change our lives. Do you think we have to come up with terminology to integrate soft robotics with AI? Do you think this is something is really interesting to be to discuss to dig in or? How do you, how do you think about these terminologies about AI and soft robotics? Um, so one of the challenges with soft robotics that AI can address uh, has to do with um, just the incredibly high you know number of degrees of freedom that we have within mm. these uh, soft robotic systems. I mean these materials are in, a, in a essence infinite degree of freedom systems. I mean they kind of deform mm -hmm. uh, uh, continuously. Um, and so it's really difficult to uh, establish the shape uh, and, and kind of track the motion of these systems uh, just with kind of a handful of, uh, of sensors the way you would with kind of a, a more conventional piecewise rigid robot. Um, and so when it comes to sensing, proprioception, state estimation, um, you know, the interaction of these, these robots with their uh, environment, when you only have kind of um, uh, you know, just a couple of data points in, in terms of sensing, um, it really helps if you have statistical uh, uh, learning tools, uh, 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 you know, data-driven techniques and, you know, other types of, you know, methods that we find in artificial intelligence, you know, to help uh, basically the robot uh, learn how to interact uh, with, with other objects and kind of, you know, basically get a sense of its, of, of its state 
uh, in its configuration and, and space. Um, and so, yes, I, I see kind of data-driven techniques and, and AI uh, as having a, kind of a very important role uh, in um, soft robotics, potentially even more important than in, in kind of uh, simpler kind of piecewise rigid robotic systems that mm. can kind of be studied in, in more of a deterministic and less of a statistical way. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, how we can engage general public in soft robotics? Do you think it is really important to make the people aware about soft robotics and how they can really have potential changes for life in the, in the future? One of the attractive things about soft robotics, and I think what's uh, also what's driven a lot of the early interest in this mm. field is the fact that it's um, so easy for non-experts uh, to participate in and to build their prototypes uh, and, and engineer kind of simple robotic systems uh, without having to have you know, very expensive uh, tools or a great deal of uh, expertise in, in mechatronics. Um, and so in a sense, I, I uh, see soft robotics as a force for kind of democratizing uh, robot uh, design. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and, and certainly that's, that's kind of, you know, been the, even the explicit kind of focus of a lot of kind of the, the early pioneers uh, in, in the field of, of uh, soft robotics. The fact that you can just go and, um, uh, you know, even a middle school student, um, you know, or, or somebody, you know, who doesn't have kind of, you know, you know, all the types of resources you find in industry or in academia, they can go, uh, you know, in their own home and, and uh, Build a lot of these uh, 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 systems, um, and, and you know, come up with their own new designs and, and kind of perform their their own types of you know, uh, you know, tests and, and kind of you know, implement their ideas. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think the, um, the the you know the fact that soft robotics is is kind of simple uh, and accessible uh, for people. Um, does kind of, you know, create a lot of kind of educational opportunities and, and kind of just broadens, um, you know, the uh, range of different types of perspectives and contributions that we can have in the field, you know, from, you know, in terms of novel designs uh, and, and manufacturing methods. So do you think we have to degrade soft robotics in a children's education? For instance, Elon Musk um, said that he wants to his kids to go to um, a private school where can they learn the basics of engineering skills instead of going to a normal school. Do you agree with that? Do you think we have to do this strategy for soft robotics uh, and it's uh, what was really required for education? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, say the, the question again. Uh, this do, was do, about private versus public school? Or? Yeah, do you think we have to integrate soft robotics in children's education? Is it something we have to do that? or? Um, I, I wouldn't, I mean... I, I would say that soft robotics uh, can be a, an incredibly powerful uh, educational tool uh, because it introduces students to kind of a lot of uh, you know different concepts you know from you know robot mo- mobility and bioinspiration to uh, control and, and sensing and also manufacturing methods and, and you know working with um, you know soft materials and, and uh, you know the mechanics of, of materials. Um, and so I think it's a very uh, rich field. Um, I would say that as with, um, you know, you know, academic level research, uh, it's really important, I think, for educators to, to be, you know, especially in, in, in areas like this where it is so interdisciplinary, uh, that they um, have kind of a pretty firm mind uh, or basically have, you know, firmly in mind what the the kind of the the educational objective is uh, of those lessons. Um, If it's kind of too interdisciplinary and and too ad hoc, um, you know, although it might be fun uh, for students, uh, you know, might, uh, for others, you know, for some students it might be fun, for others it might be a little bit uh, confusing uh, and, 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 you know, not properly guided. Um, And so it's important uh, that, you know, any kind of educational activity that uses soft robotics has you know you know a very tight lesson plan associated with it, uh, and you know certain types of learning outcomes or objectives uh, that you know the, the students and, and educators can kind of aim towards. Mm-hmm. So um, I would like to see if you, if you ever designed a soft robotics and you've tested already in daily basis. I mean something you're already using in you have already designed the lab and you're using already in your home or something that you have already developed. If there's something you have already did like that. 
So we, so my research group uh, has a few spin-off companies uh, where we are commercializing uh, some of the technologies that have been developed in my group. Um, so one of these companies is uh, commercializing a rigidity tuning element uh, that is based on electrostatic adhesion. Um, and um, another company uh, is commercializing um, the, these soft multifunctional materials uh, mm -hmm. where we use a liquid metal droplets uh, to uh, tailor electrical and thermal properties uh, of, the, of the composite. Uh, and we have a third company uh, that's um, uh, creating um, these electronic stickers uh, that mm -hmm. can adhere to the skin uh, and can uh, uh, monitor uh, vitals uh, and physiological state. Um, so any one of these, I mean, you know, eventually could be uh, used in a consumer product uh, that, you know, could be uh, available uh, commercially. Um, or, you know, they could also be used, you know, for certain types of, um, uh, you know, uh, industrial applications uh, where, you know, they're not, they don't show up necessarily in a consumer end product, but they could still be uh uh, essential in, in uh, being able to, in, in order to manufacture those those devices, those products. Um, and so that's something that right now, former lab members uh, uh, from my group are, are currently pursuing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of see what, what comes out of that in, in the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Also, I would yeah. like to ask you, as you're really a BT supervisor, what's qualification you're looking for with the student to join your lab? Which, which the main qualities of faculties you're looking for? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, for, for students kind of joining my uh, group, uh, uh, generally I am looking uh, for, um, you know, people, again, if they're pursuing a PhD, um, it's important that they identify a certain scientific discipline uh, that uh, they really want to master and develop uh, expertise in. Uh, in my research group, um, I mean, you know, we... Um, uh, you know, do kind of research in the domains of, um, you know, mechanics modeling and also kind of uh, microfabrication. And, and increasingly, I have a few students who are kind of interested in um, adapting data-driven techniques uh, for um, uh, soft robotics. Um, and so kind of regardless of what that discipline is, it's important that we are able to establish a kind of a pathway, a roadmap uh, for them to master that discipline and make uh, fundamental scientific contributions. In those cases where I myself don't have the expertise uh, to guide that, um, um, you know, we can uh, uh, find a, a co-supervisor mm -hmm. uh, with a complementary set of expertise to make mm -hmm. sure that the student uh, is kind of uh, on, on the right path. Okay. So lastly, I would like to ask you what piece of advice you can give to a starting student soft robotics? So I would tell uh, students uh, interested in, in kind of entering the field of soft robotics um, that uh, it's uh, you know very important that they uh, are aggressive in implementing their ideas uh, and take advantage of the fact that soft robotics uses a lot of rapid prototyping tools, so it allows for very kind of rapid iterations uh, of design ideas. Um, and another piece of advice uh, I would say is to make sure um, to form a strong foundation in some type of uh, scientific discipline that's relevant to, to soft robotics. I mean, you're not expected to kind of master every single kind of aspect of soft robotics and, mm -hmm. and, and you're not supposed to be, you know, expected to be a world expert on, on every discipline, but kind of select one where you can have that depth um, and, and, you know, f look for opportunities, not just to help uh, advance the field of soft robotics, but kind of make uh, you know, contributions that could translate to other fields as well. Cool. So at the end of this podcasting and on behalf of IEEE Soft Robotics Committee, I would like to thank you for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank, thank you very you. much.